0: Go ahead be seated. You can go ahead and turn to uh, the book of Romans. We're going to start in chapter 1 and go through a part of it. There was, uh, I know that all of us who were able to participate uh, and, and be there with the wedding yesterday, it was an exciting time. There's was a lot of really, really neat time uh, when two Christian young people give their lives to each other yeah, in the presence of um, a lot of us, uh, to honor God throughout their life and be a team for God, and that's—it was really neat to something to be a part of. And I know that the the Hibble family and the Bakers—they um, uh, adjust to giving another one of their children away, and and uh, things change up for them. But I think it changes up for all of us whenever I go to a wedding. Something something changes. And I I was thinking about uh, when I uh, heard. Very quickly, I realized people were looking at me at the reception. I couldn't figure out what was going on. And people were like, all right, Chris, good. like, what's going on here? And I realized that my daughter had caught the bouquet at 12 years old and the fear that gripped my soul when that happened. And uh, I know that Shiloh and and, um, and Mike, uh, the little guy, Justin, the garter at three, you know, that's probably even scarier for them, but anyway, it was uh, it you no, know, it's one of those fun moments. And one of the things just to, to share with you, uh, I had some of my family from Italy here this last uh, couple of weeks. Um, Claudia and her husband Daniele just left here a few minutes ago, and they, after the wedding and after the time of being here part of the church, because we drug him to everything that we were involved with and we were participating with the church, something they said is, this, is, this has got to be an amazing community of people. These people were so friendly to us. We just saw the kindness that they share is something that we're not used to seeing. And please say thank you to them uh, for, for welcoming us during this time. And so sometimes we don't even realize the impact that we make in, in very short, uh, small circumstances like this. But just uh, with this, uh, these people visiting for a couple of weeks from Italy, you made an impact and, and i 'm hopeful that that those seeds continue to grow in pretty amazing ways as they go back to italy and and hopefully continue in a life of faith from from there uh, we 're going to be in Romans uh, this uh, uh, some this fall, and we we talked and i 've walked us through some of it and i 'll give us a, a brief overview here again is, remember, whenever we look at a, a book, we've got to look at context. W- what does the context tell us about what's going on in this particular situation? And if you remember, we walked through some of the timeline here, is that we see that there are people from Rome that, are, that came to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that heard the message of God. It's, we understand that if they would have done like everyone else did, they took the message of God back with them. And so they would have started churches, or churches would have grown out of the synagogues there, about that time, 30 AD. Now, there's some some flexibility in these dates here. But 49 AD, Claudius, the Roman emperor at the time, uh, has has a problem because the Jews keep stirring the pot in all the synagogues because they're debating about this Crestus guy. And so he kicks them out, kicks all the Jews, Christians, non-Christians, whatever, kicks them all out of Rome at this point in time. And then You've got these churches that are established by Jewish Christians that have a life of faith behind them, knowing about God. They just didn't understand that Jesus was this king that was supposed to come, but they understood God very well. And just imagine with this church, if half of us were immediately gone, what would happen next week? And that's what these churches had to do. They had to wrestle with. What do we do now that half of us, or we don't know what the percentage was, but a bunch of us are gone And five years later, Claudius passes away. The Jews are allowed to come back. And in the five years since then, the Gentile Christians have learned to cope. They've learned to work. They've learned to... The church has become a flavor all their own, I guess we can say. And so the Jews come back, and all of a sudden, everything changes again. Because if you've been in leadership before, you come back five years later, what do you expect? Things to be just like they were before. And they're not. And so there's this tension that these people more and more as we go through the book of Romans. But we're gonna I want to read this again, Romans one verses sixteen and seventeen, because I'm gonna come back to this verse over and over and over again because Paul comes back to this and he refers to this indirectly or directly. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Hey, we're going to come back to that. We spent some time on that here a couple of weeks ago. Hey, there is, I'm going to show you some pictures here of just uh, how proud the Romans were. and and the things that they could be excited about. This is right here. It's called the Arch of Titus. This was built a little bit after the time that the Book of Romans would have been written. But you see these arches all over. And so when conquering generals would come back to town after they had conquered some people somewhere, they would come back and they would build an arch in their honor. And if you look at this arch on the inside, I don't know how well you can see it from here, but the Jews that were enslaved when Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus, they came back and they were... But were called to 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 basically carve out the articles of the temple that the Romans were carrying away. And so this is really interesting. The first time I saw it, uh, you see these articles of the temple. It's the closest thing we could ever have to a photograph of what the things like the candelabra and the silver trumpets and some of those things looked like in the in the temple. Because people who were eyewitnesses carved that there. Pretty amazing thing to be able to look at. Romans uh, have these big parades. This is Julius Caesar here. You know, a big, muscly guy that was, that, that was the, the leader of the Roman Empire there for a while. And he's one that, you know, he's, he's holding his, like a big number one up in the air They're like, I am the man. And we, we look at how great we are. You see, this is a, the Pantheon as well. This was, was built way before Jesus walked the earth. Pretty amazing architecture, amazing place there. Here you see, uh, this is a picture of just the aqueducts. And these are amazing because a lot of them are still intact. And they went out to the mountains around Rome and would bring water into Rome. And just the engineering that was done there without computer analysis, anything like that, phenomenal engineering to bring fresh water into Rome and to, to take the wastewater out Pretty phenomenal, phenomenal stuff that these aqueducts were designed to be able to do. So the Romans were people, and, and this is just a, a little piece of what you see there. When you walk around now, you, you see the, the history there. His Romans were very proud. Their city was bigger than any city had been uh, in that time period. Their city was, as they said, all roads lead to Rome. And there's a place at the Campidoglio that you can stand and you can look at. That was the center of Rome, and there's a that is the center of Rome. And you look out, there's roads that go all sorts of directions. It's like a wagon wheel that go out to all the world, was the the idea. And just imagine what your attitude would be like if you grew up with that. As we are the center of the universe, we are greater than everybody else. Our gods must be greater than everybody else because we conquer everybody else. That's just what we do. We Romans, we are conquerors. That's what, what we are. And so what Paul does here in the next bit is he shows them another side to their culture that would have, as people would have been listening to this letter, that would have caused them to pause and think about, wait a minute here, maybe there's some things that I need to be shameful of as well. I'll start reading in verse, six, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known to God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. And so from these verses, Paul indicates is that no matter who people are in the world, God has made himself known to them in some form or fashion. He's, He's made it clear that he's there. But even though that is the case, people still choose to deny his existence and ignore that he's there. We see that, don't we? And we see people that talk about that, that that say, yeah, maybe there's a God out there, but I'm not going to do anything about it. My head and my heart is going another direction. Let's continue in verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. And this is something the prophets talk about a lot, is that how does it make sense that if God is this amazing God that is invisible to us, but he has created everything, we see the evidence of him everywhere, why on earth would you make a statue of a lizard and worship it? Why would you do something like that? This This is folly. This is what a fallacy. But you see that people, as people, we have throughout time because it's so easy for us. It's a lot easier for us to worship and put our faith in something that we can touch. And that's what we tend to do. And so there comes idolatry out of that. And you looked at the Romans. is You look around their city. There is temple after temple after temple to all of these different gods. And all of these images to all these different gods. That according to the God that we know and the God that we understand are nothing. These gods, these, they're, they're just this this silver image or this wooden image or whatever it is that's but it's not uh, capable of really doing anything and if we stop and think about that for 10 seconds we can see how ridiculous it is to put our faith in something that we can touch instead of the creator god who who is greater than all that let's continue looking here in verse 24 therefore god gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of, about God for a lie and worshipped and, r- and served created things rather than the Creator who is ever praised. Amen. That's attention. Is worshipping things that are created instead of the Creator himself. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their error. And so you see in these verses here, this is just, as Paul is talking through this, is what happens when societies and people decide to worship other things aside from God. What happens is this ideal that God has set for us, that we have one man, one woman for life, goes out the window and people indulge themselves... We as people do this. We indulge ourselves in all sorts of sexual immorality that creates all sorts of heartache and destruction. He talks about here, if you just imagine the Romans, and if, I remember when, and I think I've mentioned this before, when I busted this gut surgery on my elbow because of the ice skating accident the Great Falls Youth Rally several years ago, decided, man, I've got to do something productive while I'm laying in bed here. And uh, I, started, I read this this big volume on the history of Rome and it was just, it was really sad how, how messy the personal lives were of, of the people, especially the people in authority and the leaders. Just a disaster. And you see that they, uh, they did not, the, the emperors wouldn't marry one woman for life. They would marry and they'd remarry and they'd, they'd have all these other people on the sides that created all sorts of, of, um, of destruction now, the scripture here mentions as well homosexuality that was rampant within the Roman world at that point in time. And all of that creates all sorts of destruction uh, when when we go away from, from God's plan for our life. And so Paul references that there, but he doesn't stop. Look at verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so they might so they do what uh, ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And so there's a whole lot of other things of evil that happens. And not only that, but we as societies will tend to encourage other people to do evil. Not only participate in ourselves, but encourage other people to do that. And so as as I put myself in this situation, this letter is written to these Roman Christians. There's this tension between... These Jews and Gentile Christians, and how do we get along and how do we learn to get along again? And maybe we should just go our separate direction because this is just too hard to deal with right here. And what Paul does, if there would have been a newspaper of, that, that talked about the, the problems within the Roman world, you could look at Romans 1 and you would see right down the line the problems that they even knew very well themselves that they had. Uh, Caesar Augustus, interestingly enough, outlawed divorce in the Roman world because he thought it was destroying the fabric of their society. He outlawed it. It didn't change anything. People did what they wanted anyway. But he wanted to send a very powerful message. He wasn't even a guy that was godly at all, but he saw the destruction that was created when, when we just do what we want instead of, instead of honoring God. And so you look at, um, look at this. I have to think that the Roman Christians, as they're listening to this, are thinking, wait a minute here. Paul's talking to me. Paul's talking to my people. Paul's talking to my society here, that some society that I'm so proud of, a society that I have been bred from infancy to talk about, that we are conquerors, that we are great, that look at how head and shoulders we stand above the world. But if I'm going to be honest, I have to look at my society and realize that it is rotten to the core as well. And if I'm going to be a person of God, I've got to be sincere. I've got to realize that that is the situation. Let's continue on here. Chapter um, chapter two, uh, starting in verse one, you notice he says the first word there, you. Okay. We'll take a time out here. Skip over to verse 17. He says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew. And so what he's doing is he's giving a contrast. He's going to talk to the Gentile Christians first, and then he's going to talk to to the Jewish Christians. And look what he says here. Chapter two, verse one, you, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? And so Paul says here, okay, all right, you Gentile Christians, you Romans, who have been bred since birth to be proud of everything that you are and proud of your society, think about for a minute what your society really is when you look past just the surface, when you look past the statues, when you look past the amazing architecture, you look past this. And you would have to think that these Roman Christians would have thought, oh, man, you know, I know my friends whose lives have been destroyed by participating in all that laundry list of stuff that is there. I know that, that type of thing. And so Paul says, therefore, your job is not to condemn the spirituality of somebody else who is honoring God. This is within the Christian context, okay? Now, sometimes that you know, our world throws around this idea of, of don't judge, meaning don't tell me to do anything, um, and I can do whatever I want. And that's never how it's used in Scripture. It's used in we're supposed to call each other higher and call each other to love God, but we as people are not to take the place of God ever, and that's God's job. And so Paul tells them here, don't judge, don't condemn others. Remember that God is gracious with you. Therefore, you need to be gracious with others. These Jewish Christians may be driving you nuts, but your job is to be gracious and your job is to be compassionate because God has done the same for you. Verse 5, But because of your stubbornness and stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be re- revealed. God will repay each Person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. So for both Jews and Gentiles, the Gentile Romans, Here's the deal for you. This is how you are similar. If you do good things, if you follow God and you honor him, then there's going to be a great reward. And if you do evil, then there's going to be great punishment. In that, no matter who you are, no matter what your situation is, there's your common ground. And find that. And it's a lot easier for us to understand the perspective of somebody else if we can find that common ground first. And so if we do good, there's, there's great things waiting for us. If we do evil, there's punishment and judgment. And then we won't read this, but in chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, Paul talks about even the Gentiles sometimes obey God without even knowing his laws. And I believe that's part of us being created in God's image, even when we don't know God's will for our lives. Sometimes we do the right things just because there's something in there created in God's image that gets a hold of our soul, and, and we tend to do, do good things. not always the case, but that does happen, and he just references that. But he's going to talk about that more next week, or the next time, We go through Romans, so I'll, I'll wait and talk about that some next time. But as I think on this, there's some questions that I reflected on that I believe the Roman Christians would have been reflecting on as well. The question, number one, what are you really proud of? Because on the surface level, the Romans would have been proud of their statues, they would have been proud of their military, they would have been proud of the architecture. They had a lot of things like that to be proud of. And Paul, remember what he told him? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Maybe it was harder for the Romans to be proud of the gospel because it was just something you couldn't see and you couldn't touch. And you had to have faith. And it's a lot easier to put our faith into something that we can see, like statues, like this powerful society, than it is in in a God that we can't see. And so what types of things are you going to be proud of? Let me give an example for me that I thought about this week. Um, and this is just kind of a harmless, funny example that, to get us into this discussion. But um, I, as I've sh- shared before, um, I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. Okay? I'm I know, it's hard. You know, Chris Rangel's about to leave, I can tell. It's, this is a bad deal. Right? There is no, It's very spiritual being a cowboy fan because you can go years and years and think that things are going to go well and it just doesn't right at the last moment. And you learn how to suffer and you learn humility and you learn all that kind of stuff. You know, That's how it works. But I remember a few years ago, I was down in Dallas and I toured the, uh, the, what they call Jerry World, the new stadium that is down there. And what I noticed about the stadium, okay. if, if I want to be honest, if I'm going to be transparent and I'm going to look with a life of faith, um, with the eyes of faith, what I saw is lockers that were created for these football players that just the wood in the locker itself, the tour guide told us, was $15,000, just the wood itself. And that doesn't count the carpentry work to put it in there. And I'm thinking... Do you think the football players really care what kind of wood that they put their, their their smelly jerseys on? I don't think they care at all. Anyway, now that happened, I was I was amazed to see of how much there was there was advertisement and and the um, the effort to to increase consumption of alcohol. And I'm not talking about taking a sip. I'm talking about drinking a lot. There was a lot of things that were involved. There was every corner in that stadium somewhere had had bars that with lots of alcohol flowing. Something I've, I noticed is there was a, something that someone made a comment to me here a while back that it, it, caught, it made me think anyway. It said, I could never like the Dallas Cowboys because of the way they have objectified cheerleaders. I thought, huh. No, that's something worth considering. you know. And in this stadium, there's some of the season ticket holders. They are, have their, their place that they're given, and they choose this place so they can sit right by where the cheerleaders are. And I don't know if you can even see the game past where the cheerleaders are. But you know, people pay for that. And, and so as a person that, is, that wants to not be ashamed of the gospel... And I look at, at that situation, I think, okay, just like the Romans would have had to. I love my society, but I've got to be honest about what my society really is. And so as a football fan, I saw myself after that becoming less and less vocal and more and more self-depreciating, I guess I can say that, because I wanted to be a fan within the proper context and not be promoting something that I don't want to be a part of. You follow me? You get the idea, okay? So there's a lot of things like that in life that we can we can pursue that way. Is maybe sometimes with our families we can we can uh, um, love our families as God tells us to, but we can we can be devoted to our families to a point where we are not willing to see the shortcomings of our own families. No, I know I do that. I'm a parent. I'm not objective. I'm a parent. I love my children. You know, and that's uh, that's something that we can run into. We can run into that as being people of, uh, you think about with the Romans, they were a great superpower that the world hadn't seen anything like that before. Does that sound familiar? It's us, isn't it? We are a phenomenal superpower, and we're different because we have some, some Christian foundations. But there's a lot of me that grew up being trained to be extremely proud of my country, and I am, and I still am. But as the older I've got, the more I've read Scripture, the more I've decided that I need to make sure that I am objective about the shortfalls of our country as well, and not defend and not and decide that I'm going to be a Christian first and American second. And sometimes that creates tension for me. Sometimes I have to wrestle with that. And sometimes that is not easy, uh, trying to to figure out where that fits and all of that. And that's just simply what Paul is telling the Romans to do as well: is be understand where your people are there's some sides to them that is that is very shameful and you need to be honest about that also something another question here is who is the real enemy so if you are a roman christian that you're sitting there and you've been in a few years of these jews being back and it's been conflict and it's been frustrating and you're trying to figure out how to walk through it who are you going to think the enemy is who do you think These Jewish Christians that are here next to me, because they've come back and things were smoother when they were not here and they've come back and now we have these headaches and now we've got these problems. And Paul helps them remember here who the real enemy is, which is Satan is the real enemy. And that's where we get ourselves in trouble personally, uh, in the church, in society in general, when we... Start to look at each other as the enemy instead of seeing that Satan is the enemy that is just inciting us to try to create conflict. That's what happens. And and when we miss that, we create all sorts of heartache for ourselves and others. And so that's a a huge question that I believe these Romans would have been faced with here at this point in time. All right, who is the real enemy here? And we're going to come back to this and it's going to come up. In the first chapters of, of Romans, Paul is laying this foundation for some really practical stuff he's going to talk about as you go along here. But who is the real enemy? Who is who is my real enemy? And that's a good thing for us to consider and to think about as, as we go forward and remember that every day. Because our tendency, if we live by sight, is to say, the person across from me or the person in the next cubicle or the person that is, that is doing this or that or whatever is my enemy. We don't say it that way, but we think in those terms. If this person would just be different, then things would be okay. And we walk through life that way, but what we're doing is we're just living by sight. What we're seeing, what we're we're reacting to is just whatever is making me comfortable or uncomfortable at that moment. And we as Christians are called to take a step back and to look and see who the real enemy is. Is that Satan is there working to create division and distraction at any given moment and any time around us. And when we are able to look with spiritual eyes and live by faith and walk by faith, we're able to see who the real enemy is there. Now in the next centuries, what happens is these Roman Christians, several of them are executed. Many of them share their faith. And more than any other place from, that I'm aware of in church history, the message of God goes out from Rome and changes the world in powerful ways. And I can't help but think that at this moment in time, right here, when Paul writes this letter, that there were some of these little house churches or these people that were meeting together, thinking, you know, we're just going to go our direction because we can't get along because we're frustrated because we just don't see eye to eye. And maybe it was some of these phrases that Paul said: his these questions. What are you really proud of? Are you really proud of God's kingdom? Are you proud of these statues out here? Are you proud of something that lasts forever, something that will be conquered here in a few years? And number two, who's the real enemy? Is the real enemy the person that has some different customs that's sitting next to you, or is the real enemy, are you going to remember that this real enemy is Satan? And I can't help but think if we walk through life this way, asking these questions, what am I really proud of? And who is my real enemy? And we ask those questions, that helps us see things in a lot clearer perspective than we ever would otherwise. And that's my prayer as we go home today, this week, that we can continue to dwell on these questions and continue to reflect on them. And I wanted to give the opportunity as well, if you'd like prayers to the church, there's some elders that will be waiting in the back, and um, I can uh, talk with you and, and pray with you up here. As Lyle's gone this morning. Um, and also, um, if you'd like to become a Christian today, you're welcome to come forward. Let's stand and sing together.